Thanks for joining me for the Friday Reporter Podcast. My name is Lisa Camuso Miller, and I am a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., talking to reporters from all across the country about how it is they do their work and how it is we as communication professionals can do ours better. Well, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Friday Reporter. I am joined today by a friend and a colleague who I have worked with now for many of the years that I've lived in Washington, uh, both at the publication he's at today, but also uh, in his previous role on Capitol Hill. Brody Mullins, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So um, do we go back to when you worked for Denny Hastert? We do. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I mean, 20 years, um, maybe not quite, but pretty close 15 years, <laughs> 15 years for sure. Crazy. Yeah. We were in the Capitol wow. together and we were, you know, you were at wow. roll call at the time. And, uh, I mean, it's been a really long, um, but fun run. And like, we've been to Bruce Springsteen yeah. concerts together and we've done some other, you yeah. know, fun social things as well. But yeah, it's been, um, I probably, it may have been even sooner than that. I mean, obviously you and I had a colleague in uh, Ron Bonjean who uh, I worked right. with at the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, before I came to Capitol Hill. And so oh, we may okay. have, we may Maybe have overlapped. Back then. Yeah, might have been then. But I've been in Washington for 20 wow. years. Yeah. The Bush administration. I know. That was a long time ago. Oh, don't, don't say that. That <laughs> makes us all feel old. <laughs> it's so much changed. So, oh. Brody, you're at the Wall Street Journal now, um, and you've been there for, for quite some time. Uh, you've had a really good run there. Um, tell me a little bit, though. I mean, what I love about your story is, you know, that you've not only been a reporter yourself in town for quite some time, you also have a brother who's a reporter in town. Are you, do you come from a family of journalists? How is it that you guys, how is it that you got into journalism? Yeah, so um, my family or me are uh, sort of weird people where we um, happen to grow up in D.C. My parents both worked for the government um, in career jobs, which just meant that we grew up in D.C. when it was a lot of you know, a different place a few decades ago. Yeah. Um, and I think just being in D.C. where you're, you know, your best friend's dad is a deputy chief of staff to someone and your other friends mom, you know, works at the Department of Labor or something that you just, you're kind of like more aware of government and news and politics. Mm-hmm. Not that it's something you talk about as an eight-year-old, but, Mm-mm. you know, we would watch the nightly news every night and we'd get the newspaper and you have to flip through the front section to get to the sports section, the comics, you just kind of happen to pick up a couple things. And so I was sort of always just aware of um, the government and how it works and, and journalism. And for some strange reason, um, I think when I was in elementary school or certainly high school, I decided I wanted to be um, a, a writer and a reporter. And it just so happens that the best place to be a, a writer and a reporter is Washington, D.C. So yeah. um, except for college, I really never left D.C. Um, when I graduated college, the um, easiest place to get a job was was in Washington because there's so many publications. You know, uh, everyone knows about the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and big newspapers, but what people don't know who are not uh, in D.C. is that there are hundreds, maybe a thousand smaller publications that cover the Department of Agriculture and the Federal Communications Commission. And the, there's probably 10 publications that cover the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. So if you're a aspiring reporter and want to make $25,000 a year, you've got a job. Yeah. Um, and that's just, you know, a way that I use to get my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. 
Isn't that so that's cool? That's how I... Here we are raising our families in Washington, too. Like, I remember being on a class trip with a, a colleague of ours who works at the New York Times and another friend who's a politico, and, and we all sort of joked, like, maybe we could make this a business meeting, call this a business meeting as we're on a class trip together with our kids. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, then, But I think, really think DC is a lot different from what it was back then. I mean, back then it was, uh, I think, a much more affordable place to live. There were few, there was a lot less money that federal contracting business hadn't really blown up, which is where a ton of the DC money comes from. The sure. lobbying influence businesses were smaller. Um, uh, members of Congress uh, lived here instead of sort of going back and forth more. Um, but anyway, it's just a much different place than it used to be. And obviously, you know, far more partisan, unfortunately, now than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people attribute that to the entry of, uh, of, C-SPAN and other sort of access into the the Capitol building for for media as a way for sort of that partisanship to have grown and that sort of split to sort of have happened. But we don't have to get into that analysis today. Um, I'm, though, curious about, because it has changed so much uh, from the time that you started, did you start at Roll Call? No. Where did you start? Uh, my first job was at a place called Congress Daily, uh-huh. um, yeah. which is now called National Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's the same place, just, just sort of morphed in a different direction. Congress Daily was kind of like Politico or Politico Pro before Politico Pro existed. It was a newspaper that, um, or really a newsletter that thrived in the uh, the 10 years between the invention of the fax machine and the invention of the internet. Mm-hmm. And what the smart people at Congress Daily did was hire a bunch of young reporters and send them up to cover uh, committees and subcommittees where real business legislation happens, um, not on the House and Senate floor, but really like deep in the in the committee system. And we would write about bills and legislation and hearings. And the idea was instead of waiting till the next day when the paper came out, they faxed it out at three o'clock. And it was this genius idea because yeah. all of a sudden uh, lobbyists and staffers and members of Congress could get tomorrow's news today mm-hmm. and it blew people away and people made insane amount of money. Um, they charged a ton of money for it. I think it was like $3,000 a year. Which, it was a must read. Uh, for I mean, you had day. to read it. Yeah. You had to be right. reading it. You had to and know the what stories was going were, on. Stories I think were like 250 words long. Yeah, they we were not, we weren't telling people these long no, just uh, the facts. Weren't features. <laughs> there weren't long words. stories, just the facts. Yeah. But people had to know that. And that was literally before Blackberries. Um, yes. and before, um, uh, you know, the internet and then the internet came along and other publications started publishing similar stories instantaneously. And for some reason, Congress daily that had this genius idea of publishing at 3 PM said, no, nah, people, people want to wait till 3 PM. They don't want to read it all day long. They just want to wait till 3 PM. Mm. So they essentially stuck with the 3 PM business model, uh, which, you know, I don't think I need to tell the end of that story. No, um, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it, it's and it it continues to happen, right? I mean, it's, it literally is like you know, one idea eats the other idea, and the other idea, you know, unless right. they're unless they're evolving and they're changing, um, which has really been, it's been interesting on your side of the business. It's also been really challenging on my side of the business, um, but it's what makes challenging us, on both sides. Yeah, it's there's the challenges are are everywhere, and so. Moving along to where you are today, because you have, I mean, you're you're in a great place. Obviously, everybody that's listening and has heard of the Wall Street Journal. But what's different about what you, how you report for uh, this New York 
publication is that you write about how business intersects with Washington, D.C., how New York and, I mean, really all of it, just sort of one influences the other. What do you think is the most, like if you're thinking back, like is there a a story that sticks out in your mind as one of the favorites that you covered or one of the things that you worked on that you really enjoyed? Um, there are, there are definitely a lot of stories I've really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. I think to roll back for one second, when I was at Congress Daily and then I went to a publication called Roll Call, which is similar but a little broader, is I was covering all these Washington issues for Washington readers and realizing that um, these are great business issues, that the, the, the fights in uh, congressional committees and subcommittees are really about regulations that affect businesses and businesses were spending lots of money on lobbyists to figure out exactly what I was trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of realized that, you know, we in Washington consider Congress and the white house to be politics, but it really is huge business issues and, um, policy and, um, companies spend, uh, millions of dollars, uh, to, influence legislation in a way that helps them, but also to kind of screw their competitors. Yes. So it becomes this big game where even within, within one industry, you know, American airlines is trying to tweak this rule in order to, to mess with United airlines and United airlines is trying to do this to screw with us air. Um, it's all hypotheticals. Um, but it's <laughs> yeah. a huge battle between businesses where they're fighting it out in the marketplace, but they're also running to DC to try to change rules to tilt the marketplace and the rules to their advantage. And I just found that to be like great fun. Um, and so you and, you started this beat then. You started really working in this space back then, back when you were at Roll Call. I think that's when I saw it. I, I didn't. I don't think I wrote about uh, lobbying okay. back then. Mm-hmm. But by covering the policy, I realized that this was really I was in a way covering a different side of business. Interesting. Um, maybe a side that shouldn't exist. You know, trying to mess with the rules in D.C. But. But in fact, a side that does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so when so later, so for some reason, I always wanted to work for the Wall Street Journal. I thought it was a great mix of business and uh, government and sure. policy. And um, so I sort of took that expertise I had in knowing how committees and subcommittees work and knowing how lobbyists try to change legislation to try to write much broader stories about how businesses come to Washington and use the various tools of influence, money. Um, you know, uh, uh, lobbyists, uh, television, you know, whatever tools of influence companies have, how they use those tools to try to play the, play the game in Washington. Yeah. And for the Wall Street Journal, I think those are the best stories. I mean, before I got to the journal, it seemed like they had about a story a day. Every day, you could the journal, it's a great story about how some company or industry is doing something to win in Washington that you'd never heard of. Um, and so I sort of inspired to try to write stories like that. Yeah. Well, they're great stories. And I think that it's, it's the kind of thing that, that really has uh, become very helpful, not only for um, folks in DC who are trying to illuminate, you know, what it is they do and how it is it influences, not just what happens inside the beltway, but also how it influences everything that happens across the country and across the globe. Um, It's been a really, I think a really fun from the outside, from reading what it is that you do every day. It's been super um, fun Thank to you. see. And and my favorite uh, story that I share with uh, lots of up-and-coming communicators is my story about um, 
I was working on the wrong side of an issue and you were uh, working on the story about this wrong side of the issue. Uh-oh. And no, 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 it worked out great. Um, but the one thing I would say is that because you and I had a, had a, a, a a friendship and a relationship uh, that was, um, you know, you had a job to do. I had a job to do. I had to defend my boss. You had to write the story. It was all fair and good. The one thing I love to tell people is that, you know, as the lobbyists and the lawyers were toiling over this big issue that was happening and um, sort of, you know, just miring over the fact that sooner or later we were going to be called before Congress. And when was that date going to come? Uh, It wasn't all of those high paid power people that found out when the date was coming. It was my conversation with, with you as we were working through the story that helped illuminate when the date was going to be that the hearing was going to happen. And it was because you and I had that. It It was back when we were doing the, the clean coal, uh, the fake letters to Congress story. And the CEO was with the oh, lobbyists wow. and everybody else. And, and you called me to say, you know, hey, the, the hearing has been set. And I said, well, tell me what the date is because we didn't <laughs> hear it yet because you want, it called me for comment. Right. And I said, well, hold on a second because I don't think anybody knows that. And it was because we had that exchange and that cooperation between, you know, just, just the way we interact as uh, in our business is that, you know, if I, if I help you, you help me, we work together, we share. I mean, we both have jobs to do at the end of the day, but having that kind of um, exchange, I think, was the kind of thing I'll never forget. It. I mean, the, the CEO was like, "What am I paying all these people for when I've got Lisa who has <laughs> access to this information?" So um, I, anyway, I wonder, I wonder how I found out about it. I'm sure that you were up on the hill, and and the hearing was set, and you got a call that the hearing date had been set, and then you're like, "Well, let me see what the let me see what this industry has to say about the fact that they're getting called before Congress." Yeah. Hey, Lisa, next Tuesday you're going to Congress, and I was like, "Well, that's news to me." Mm-hmm. Um, um, anyway, so well, you know that also is a, an insight um, into a little bit how journalism works. That you know, especially in Washington. I mean, in, in Washington D.C., uh, there's a enormously expensive economy. There are tons of people making tons of money, but at the end of the day, we don't make anything. We don't make cars. We don't make widgets. There's nothing we show at the end of the day. Like here's what we made for all the money. For all the money we made all about information mm-hmm. and Washington trades on information, whether it's someone like me who's trying to figure out when a committee hearing is or what's going to happen so I can put it in a story or people who work for companies who are, you know, lobbying is also information. Also, it's, it's getting information from members of Congress and giving it to your uh, executives or vice versa. Right. And members of Congress also, uh, people say that the, 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 the bills and legislation that um, have the best chance of, of making it are ones that are, crafted by the people who have the best information, the best staff. They know the most about the rules and regulations and how things work and what's going on in the industry. Um, and that's really what we, um, you know, that's what our whole economy in Washington is based off of, just this flow of information. Yes. Yeah, that's so, that's so true. That's such a good, that's such a good thing to, to highlight and to, um, boy, it makes me feel kind of insignificant though. The fact that all we do is we gossip all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. But it is good, but sometimes and it's, that it's gossip good is important. It you know, is if, very good. The gossip is that's right. The committee hearing is Wednesday. That's right. That and it, means that that makes a difference to a lot of people. It made a ton of difference. Yeah, and that was that was a great thing that was really helpful to um, to that that client at the time. So Brody, tell me a little bit now how the the pandemic has changed your way of doing work. Obviously you're not in their newsroom, you're working from home. Um, tell me a little bit about that. And then tell me a little bit about, um, well, I have a follow-up question, but let me go ahead and let you tell me about yeah. how, the, how that's changed. So it's, it's changed everything. Um, some for the better in the short term, 
some for worse. I think there could be some longer term upsides and downsides also. Um, the main problem is, as I said, um, you know, my business, everyone's business, Washington is based on the flow of information and putting everyone in their basements and on Zooms that are scheduled for 9.15 a.m. is not a good way of having information flow mm-hmm. uh, or not, you know, it sort of restricts the way that information flows. In a normal world, uh, I and other reporters would be up on Capitol Hill staying in a hallway where, um, you know, any number of dozens of members of Congress and their staffers are walking by and, you know, chit-chatting and gossiping and talking about this bill or that bill, or you're going to lunch or breakfast or dinner or coffee with folks um, to you know, kind of plug yourself into the flow of information. You know, what's going on? What company's trying to get this? What member of Congress is down? Like who's, who's not raising much money, which means maybe they're not going to run for re-election, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. And that, in, that flow, that has stopped. Yeah. Um, you can have one-off conversations with someone, which is helpful, but but I feel disconnected from the main flow of information. The bigger problem down the road is that I have worked um, in journalism for 15, 20, whatever many years that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I know hundreds or thousands of people who I can go to for information. If you're a younger reporter getting started, you don't know those people and you're yeah. not as able to make those connections and relationships. I mean, this is a good example. You and I have known each other, but we can't figure it out. Is it 15 years? Is it 20 years? Yeah. I forgot that I knew you before the job, but I thought that I knew you that. Yeah. And so we had this relationship of trust. Um, if you're a young reporter, they don't know how to find you. They don't know you. You don't trust them because you haven't built a relationship over time with, you know, meeting someone over lunch and getting to know their That's family right. and what their interests, interests are and having mutual friends and things like that. Therefore, it's sort of harder for younger people to um, to succeed as journalists right now because yeah. you don't know who to talk to. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to go back to normal here pretty soon. But if this went on for longer, it's giving a huge advantage to reporters like myself who have been around for a while um, because we have this, it, it, you know, embedded advantage of knowing people and having sources and relationships, whereas new reporters don't. Yes. Uh, so I think that's a huge change and it's i think it's a big change for lobbying also if you um if you know he has been a lobbyist for 10 years and he knows the people on the banking committee and the house financial service committee he knows the staffers and subcommittee staff directors so he can call them Mm -hmm. but new people come to his world don't know those don't know the staffers they don't know who to call right and they can't this is not a time where you can create new relationships you have to stick with it with the old people who you know um, and that's, I think, has long-term, uh, uh, real big problems for both both industries. Yeah, and and even for even for communicators, the one thing I would say that has come out of this, Every, pod- yeah, across the board. Yeah, but uh, what's come out of the podcast project is that a lot of these younger. Um, press secretaries, folks that have been on the Hill for a short period of time have become connected to to media and connected to, you know, who reporters are and how things are coming together through this uh, little project that I put together. And it's been really fun because I've gotten to know a lot of, uh, you know, press folks that are on the Hill that are doing this because they're having the same, the same challenge. And it's difficult for them to figure out, you know, who is it that I should call it the Wall Street Journal that's working on issues that, you know, related to. So, um, yeah, I see that as, as a challenge too. Boy, let's hope we get back to some sense of, um, 
in person again soon. So, but before the pandemic or right around that time, you uh, were getting ready to to embark on writing a book with your brother. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yes. You mentioned um, that my brother's in journalism. My yep. brother, Luke, works at the Washingtonian. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mullen family did not have a grand plan for two of us to go into journalism. <laughs> um, I sort of always wanted to go into journalism and Luke uh, fell into it. Um, but either way, we're both here. Um, and, uh, I had written, uh, a couple of stories several years ago, um, about, uh, a lobbyist and a sort of corruption scandal that he was involved in a financial kickback scandal he was involved in. And, um, those stories got noticed by book publishers in New York and agents who called me and said, Hey, this should be a book. Um, I had never written a book before. Um, I still haven't written a book and, but it was really intriguing because it seemed like this could be the type of story that, um, could be something I could spend a couple of years on. Uh, so, um, I teamed up with my brother for several reasons. One is he's a really good writer. I consider myself to be more of a reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't, I don't really think I'm a good writer. I don't think I have to be a good writer. I think if you have really good information, it almost doesn't matter how it comes out in, in words, unless it's, um, you know, unless people understand it right. and he's a really good writer. So I yeah. thought like we could team up together fun. and, um, and so we started, so we are, depending on how you count either a year or two years into this. Okay. Um, I don't know how long books take, so maybe it's a year or another two or another year or two more. I'm not really not sure. It's the creative process, um, right? It's just whenever it's done, it, it'll be done. Yeah. Yeah. The way the pandemic um, hurt us is back to what I was saying a minute ago. Um, you know, our plan was to have long, involved, uh, thought-provoking conversations with important people all over Washington. You know, over lunch or drinks, and um, that's canceled. So, you know, and trying to do investigative reporting and get information out of people is really hard to do over the telephone or Zoom. Yeah. You kind of want to be with someone in person having conversation, uh, sort of less threatening and it just leads to a better conversation. So we couldn't do those. Um, so instead we switched to writing what we have so far. I think the way you normally write a book, and again, I've never done it is you go out and do all the research and you have all the research for the book and then you rent a cabin in the woods with your typewriter and go (laughs) write it up. And um, that's how Hollywood would tell you it's done. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, for many reasons we, uh, not been able to, do that. Um, so instead, we sort of, I think, put the cart before the horse a little bit and started to write various sections that we have, mm. and then we'll go back and fill in reporting. Um, the good news is that in writing, we found out that we we know a lot more than we thought that we knew. Oh, we thought we had awesome. lots of holes, but yeah. when we started writing, we realized, oh wow, we we know more than we thought we knew. That's so, so great. That's good. Uh, just you know, just a long process. Um, yes, but I think it's gonna be great. It's been it's been it's been fun. It's hard to have uh, wife, kids, job, pandemic, and All then the, a book on top every, of that. Everything else. But, yeah, but you know what? But, but, but you'll get to it and it'll be a process. It's, it's, that's one of those things that they say when you get into, into writing for a book. By the way, you sell yourself short about not being a great writer. But it's nice that you and your brother can work together <laughs> on something. Um, but what's cool about it is that, you know, I think every book probably has a story and yours just happens to be that, you know, it happened during, during the pandemic. Speaking of which, right. though... 
uh, because you do have a full life uh, with, you know, lots of people in your house and everything else. What are you guys most looking forward to doing over the weekend this weekend? Um, you know, this is kind of lame, um, but... Uh, lame is okay. We're living in a... Really cool. <laughs> it, 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 in pandemic, it's very cool. My um, five-year-old girl is in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, she's on her first baseball team. Nice. Not T-ball. For some reason, they start right at baseball now. Love it. Um, uh, I volunteered to be the coach for some crazy reason. Why not? Which has actually been a lot of fun. I bet. And we have our, uh, our second game tomorrow, and uh, it's been... It's been a lot of fun. It's it's the type of beginning baseball league where no you know you're not allowed to get out. Like no one, yes, you cannot have outs. Everyone yeah. needs to get a hit. It encourages which participation. Out well because no one, nobody exactly, gets a hit. But it works out age. well because no one can actually get anyone out anyway. Right. Um. But it's it's a level where someone makes contact with the ball and they don't know if it's a run to first base, second base, or third base. I love it. <laughs> We're just learning, but it, it just makes it for makes for good fun. It is. Um. And uh, this is our second game or second third game nice third oh, game. i'd like to awesome. say we're undefeated because you know everyone dies yeah well you are undefeated that's fantastic also if she's loving it that's like half that's half of it it's just and that you get to coach at this level is kind of fun too because that's a good that's a good time yes i uh, think she has fun from time to time um she also enjoys playing in the dirt so oh yeah there's a lot of that yeah and picking daisies and to, to draw on the dirt exactly yeah yep. Exactly. So that's, that's good fun also. Just about being outside. It's just about being outside. I once coached the, uh, the soccer team at that age and it was like, uh, it was very interesting times. (laughs) It was good. It was all good. These are memories. You're making memories. Um, so, uh, last question of the day is, uh, who looking forward, who do you think would be a great future guest for the podcast? You know, thinking about like who I would like to talk to about what they do and how they got into it uh, for 30 minutes. I would uh, suggest Mark Leibovich okay. at the New York Times. He's yeah. New York Times Magazine. He's been there. For, he's written a couple books. Mm-hmm. He seems to have the type of job that I envision news or magazine jobs were like in the 1960s, where you just think of an idea and you get on a plane with uh, a bottomless expense account and you come back in a month or two months and you've got some great story. I feel I like that. that's what he does. Cool. And I'm sure he doesn't do that, but that's the way his his stories come across and the way he writes. I think uh, I would love to listen to him talk for 30 minutes about what his life is like and how he sees his craft. Well, good. Well, I'm going to tell him that you nominated him and I'll reach out. All right. Brody, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really a lot of fun to check in and catch up with you. And I will, uh, I'll be sure to keep an eye out for that book as it uh, evolves over time. Uh, put put on your calendar for a couple years down the road. That sounds good to me. I got nothing but time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brody. Thank you so much. And that's today's episode of the Friday Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.